Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. Last week, we were speaking with Dr. Esther Charlesworth at the Dogs Bar in St. Kilda, Australia, about a great many subjects, but principally how we think about disaster and disaster education differently. You can find that episode, as well as all of our past episodes, on our website at currystonefoundation.org. We're back this week with another amazing guest, Dr. Stephanie Wakefield, most recently of Florida International University, to go over interesting theories on backloop resilience. What's that? I had the same question, which is why I invited Stephanie on the show. I came across Stephanie's work among my travels, and reading her stuff gave me something that can seem really rare in 2018, genuine hope. Throughout this segment, we've been trying to assess a line between optimism and pragmatism. We don't want to be Pollyannish about disasters, climate change, and other changes our world is going through, but we don't want to be cynical either. Throughout history, in humanity's darkest hours, there's always been the green shoots of new inventions, new enlightenments, and new possibilities. For me, Dr. Wakefield's theories not only speak to that, but give a potent framework around which to believe it. But she explains it a lot better than I do, so let's go ahead and get to the show. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Yes, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. It's great to meet you. You too, you too. Somebody turned me on to your writing and I started reading about the Backloop and it's one of the more interesting theories on resilience that I've come across in the last couple of years and I really wanted to get you on the show and, and hear more about it. For for the people who are unawares, what's, what's your story? What do you do? Where are you from? Originally, I'm from Kansas. Well, I was born in Texas, but I was raised in Kansas. And then I spent the last 15 or so years in New York, where I was teaching, finishing a PhD at the CUNY Grad Center. I was teaching for the last 10 years at Queens College in, in Queens. And uh, until a couple months ago, I was a visiting assistant professor at the New School in um, the Department of Culture and Media at Lang College, where I was teaching about the Anthropocene. And so now, yeah, now I'm in, in Miami, Florida, doing some new research here. How did you get into this? I mean, has this always been like a, a passion for you? Or like at what point did you start looking at these issues of resilience and loops and Anthropocene and that sort of thing? Well, I think it's really obvious to many people that things need to change, you know, that everything needs to change, really. And, you know, in my life, I've, you know, I've been involved in politics at some points, um, but mostly not. And I've always been really astonished by you know, so in some ways, the inadequacy of the frameworks that we're taught for understanding the world that we're born into, you know, uh, for explaining what's happening to us, and the sort of rubrics that we're, we're given for how we should live and what we can do to change things. So I've always been trying to find better ways of thinking the world that we're in and the, the life that I'm living and in and, and the, and the bigger picture that I'm living it in, you know. Um, so to me, the Anthropocene early on when I first heard this concept, I don't even know when that was. It was probably like 2009 when I first heard about this idea of the Anthropocene. I thought it was really powerful because it seemed to give a name to something that, you know, like so many of us feel since we're really young, this feeling that the old world is passing away and, you know, something new is kind of being born. It gave a name to that to me in, in some sense. And it really seemed to open up possibilities for just immediately and directly rethinking every aspect of how we live as human beings at a, at a really basic level in a way that politics never seems to do in, in my experience. So I, I, you know, I was, I was really moved by the concept and, you know, it's taken its own 
course since then, you know, and people have interpreted it in absolutely different ways than I have, you know, to the point where it's almost, I think, um, unrecognizable in some ways. But, you know, to me, it offered that possibility. So then this idea of the back loop kind of came more recently as I was teaching ecology, actually, at the new school. I, I personally was going through crazy changes in my own life, too, you know, and it, and it just so, so directly seemed to, to capture something of the, the complexity of the time that we're in. It's not just this catastrophe, you know, it's not just the end. It's, it's this sort of chaotic free fall, fragmentation, transformation, and most importantly, really like opens a lot of possibility for us and freedom. So, so to me, that really came to describe a lot of, of what I was experiencing in the world. Let's see if we can dig down on this concept of Anthropocene and Backloop. And, you know, we're sort of throwing around these terms. And just to, to break it down for the audience, when we're talking about the Anthropocene, that has multiple definitions, I think, across the public sphere. What, what does it mean to you? The definition of the Anthropocene that's most compelling to me is the one that's coming out of um, Earth system science. And in that realm, for, for a lot of scientists, it's not a matter of figuring out the, the traces left in the bedrock of the Earth that uh, Western capitalist civilizations will leave, but rather it's, it's about naming the sort of moment that we're in right now, where the planet is sort of shifting out of the stable climates of the Holocene, um, which is the 11,000 or so year-long interglacial stable climates and the rise of most modern civilizations. And moving into, you know, the Anthropocene names the sort of trajectory of moving into an unknown operating space or spaces, which we see kind of right now all around us with the glaciers melting, seas rising, climates changing, and so on. In my view, though, the Anthropocene has always been a name for something much deeper and more profound than, than just environmental change. For me, it always gave a name to something that a lot of us, I think, feel inside but didn't have words for, which is that you know, the, the baselines of civilization itself are shifting. And this is something happening in every realm, geopolitically. You, know, you see political regimes and crisis everywhere. Existentially, it's something that we feel inside, you know. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's something so it's much broader. So in terms of, I think it touches on what we think, how we think, you know, what it means to live and, and who can decide what that looks like. I think that's great. And, you know, one of the reasons that I've been a fan of your writing is that, you know, in this segment on the show, we've been asking ourselves, you know, is resilience still relevant? And I think one of the reasons that people get burnt out on that term is because it's a bit bifurcated, right? I mean, it's either this incredibly fatalistic, the world is coming to an end, and, you know, we're all going to be walking on a scorched deathscape, you know, in a couple centuries. Um, or there are these really sort of flighty techno fantasies of, you know, colonizing Mars and floating cities and, and whatnot. And your work seems to strike a middle ground for me that is that is hopeful by positioning this current space, this current time in a loop of activity. Could you tell us more about that loop idea, the back loop and, and how you've woven it into this theory? Sure. Uh, yeah, as I see it, you know, the, one of the best ways I think we can describe the, the time that we're living in historically as, as human beings is uh, a back loop at the level of Western civilization. This is a time of release, fragmentation, and, and experimentation. The concept of the back loop comes from work by a resilience ecologist C.S. Halling in the realm of studying forests and forest transitions. You know, so according to him and a lot of other ecologists, basically everything in the world, you know, a swamp, a forest, a human being, goes through sort of two 
mains phases of life, a front loop of stability where everything is sort of seemingly in its place and a back loop of release and, and reorganization. You know, you might take the main example of a forest here um, to see how ecologists have thought about it. The front loop phase in a, in a forest is usually what we think of as a mature forest. So you have, right, you have um, old growth trees, uh, you have, you know, very specialized organisms sort of annexing the main uh, uh, niches available in the system. You have a very tightly connected kind of uh, ecosystem where everything, you know, from water to the sunlight is locked in place in some sense. And it seems like this is the, the end point of life, you know, things are going to stay this way forever and, and should be managed to stay this way forever. This is what a lot of ecologists thought until fairly recently. You know, the Hollings kind of intervention was to say, you know, listen, things change and, and ecosystems, you know, they, they fragment, they come apart. And the classic example here is a, a forest fire, you know, and, and it's important to note just, I think, in passing that I, I don't just transpose um, ecology one-to-one -one onto the framework that I'm working with. And for them, passing into a back loop is usually sort of like a negative thing defined by, you know, catastrophe. So like a forest fire again, right? So the classic example with the forest is a forest fire, you know, all those organized feedbacks of sun, water, carbon, nitrogen, that were bound up before are, are released, disaggregated uh, with the fire. And, you know, previously bound up material is, is freed for new combinations. It can be a time of catastrophe and endings for many aspects of the forest, but can also be a time of potential, you know, pioneer species thrive in these, in these settings. So in our current time, and you alluded to it earlier, I mean, there is this sort of zeitgeist of, of catastrophe of, of things ending and, Certainly, objectively, you know, natural disasters, so-called natural disasters have been increasing for the last couple of decades. You know, we've seen the, the last couple of years, the sort of destabilization of a lot of institutions that we took for granted, Brexit, Trump, you know, all these things kind of happening. Is that the, the sort of analog to the forest fire that sort of resets the loop in motion? Yeah, absolutely. I think we can think about Western civilization in all its dimensions, politically, you know, philosophically, environmentally, as being in a back loop. And, and all these things you just mentioned are pieces of that that we're seeing. And we see it on a daily basis in so many different ways, you know. What's a more grounded example? I mean, we can all kind of turn on the news and, and see these sort of things. But, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, what's an example of that? The, the state of politics in the world is, is one very sharp image of this that we see every day. The way in which I think a lot of people existentially are sort of searching for exit routes in some sense, you know, ways out of an order that's really destroying a, a, a lot of people, you know, um, in terms of work, in terms of future expectations, you know, but maybe most, most concretely, you know, I, it's something I can see here where I live in Miami, you know, here you have, this is sort of considered the front lines of climate change in the United States um, with regard to sea level rise. And here you can see, um, Water is coming up, flooding the streets, coming up out of gutters and things like that on a, on a sunny day because of high tides, you know. So you're seeing sea level rise here happening now. You know, sometimes people put bags over their feet to walk through flooded intersections on their way to work. And so it's just sort of, it's, a, it's an environment that's it's actually physically changing right now here. Let's talk about that and um, that as a, a form of adaptation. I remember an article I read during the Great Recession that said something that, you know, Miami had a 50-year glut of housing. Like, it was so overbuilt 
that they wouldn't need new housing for 50 years. And then, you know, six months later, like they started building again. And, you know, Miami has been continuously in this building boom, even though like the sea is encroaching, even though like people should be perhaps changing tact and changing theories and things like that. What do you think is is the adaptation strategy? I mean, these these sort of unexpected synergies that that happen after the forest fire. What does that begin to look like? Is that a managed retreat for a city like Miami? Is that bags on the feet? Is it all of the above? Are we waiting for, you know, some inspiring experiment to come along? You know, the thing about my perspective on the back loop is it's not a problem to be solved, in my view. You know, it's not a, a crisis that then someone or someone's would answer with a solution to manage it and to govern it. I think it's a, it's a situation that's opening up all kinds of questions for different people in different places. I don't think they're going to be answered in the same way for everybody moving forward, you know? So I guess in other words, I don't think there's a single solution that's going to be found. I think what's going to happen and what we're seeing happening is the, the development sort of experimentally in situ of new practices, new ways of living, new techniques for living. And this could be ways of living with water as much as it could be ways of taking care of our own bodies. You know, you see a lot of, you know, you said Miami is the center of the, this building boom. And it's so true. You know, it's like absolutely unaffordable to live here. It's insane. And if you <laughs> put the idea of um, buying a house, I mean, just like, forget that it's insane right now, you know? And so the question everyone is asking is when will it burst, you know, and how soon? And maybe it will soon and maybe it won't. We'll see. You know, and then you also have these resilience um, institutes and, uh, you know, elite universities sort of scrambling to converge on Miami because, you know, they want to use this place to test out they're sort of new techniques for governing uh, climate change, you know, and there's a real scramble in, in some ways for the resilience designs and infrastructures that will be built here. You know, but I, I guess what interests me also and, and more are the ways that ordinary people are living with these kinds of transformations in their own like really creative ways. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. I mean, this is not Miami, but this is an example that I think is very amazing. Uh, I recently went to... Um, New Orleans, my husband is from there, so I go there a lot. Um, and I went to take a trip to visit some fishermen who live about two hours north of the city in a place called Old River Landing. It's uh, located outside the Morganza Levee system on an old kind of bend of the, the Mississippi River. You know, as a result, it's because it's outside the, the levee system, it floods every year. And there's about, you know, a couple hundred structures, fishing camps, houses, they're a bar and restaurant, you know, and, and they flood. Uh, sometimes for weeks and sometimes months, it's growing in frequency lately, according to them. So, you know, and you see the main management agencies saying it's impossible to live in these areas, or at least it's dangerous, that they don't have solutions for people living in these areas. But for the fishermen there, it's not a problem. So what they've done is rather than leave, they've turned their houses into amphibious structures. They, and they came up with this on their own. They, they used YouTube. They talked to each other. They designed it, you know, um, in really like, uh, you know, mathematically complex ways, taking into account the weight of their houses and everything so that each structure now has support poles on each corner um, and styrofoam blocks underneath, which um, allow the, the houses uh, to float off their foundations when it floods uh, while preventing them from moving side to side and, you know, coming out of place. So basically on a normal day, you know, these you have these neighborhoods filled with ATVs and, you know, people planting gardens, you know, you've got flowers growing in the front yard by the driveway. 
And then during flooded times, you know, uh, when the river crests up to like 35 feet, they get in small boats to get to their homes. The houses rise up as high as needed, much higher than you could with stilts. And they are on a little cruise, as they put it. That's a really compelling vision of the future. Um, you know, not necessarily everyone living an amphibian existence, um, but more, I think, for me, the, the democratic nature of what you're describing. Let me elaborate on that uh, a bit. But before I do, we've got to take a quick break. No one go anywhere. We're going to be right back with more thoughts from Dr. Stephanie Wakefield. Welcome back to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephanie Wakefield about her theories on living in the back loop. Coming up, we're going to talk about why it's a beautiful time to be alive. Let's get to it. Stephanie, before the break, you had just told us about a community called Old River Landing in Louisiana that was practicing a sort of DIY climate adaptation. And I wanted to elaborate a bit and say that I think it's a particularly democratic way to envision the future. The idea of spontaneous democratic creation, the idea of individuals and individual communities adapting to instances of climate change uh, and other kinds of change that are happening in the back loop without any kind of elitist or autocratic programming about what the world should look like. And so many of our environments and certainly our cities that were designed in the 19th and 20th century model with some elite person deciding what goes where and, and that sort of thing. Another thing that occurred to me going through your writing you, you talk a little bit about like the sort of experiments that are going on, the back loop experiments, and some of them are seem very kind of grassroots and, and democratic, like open source ecology, and you know others are you know being funded by the the super wealthy, right? And like Elon Musk's Mars program kind of springs to mind. Once upon a time, you know most of our grand experiments were public. You know, they're essentially financed publicly. And, you know, we went to the moon and like the public health system and, you know, that sort of thing. And it seems like increasingly, you know, the grand experiments are private and are directed at, you know, the whimsy of, of whoever's got a couple billion dollars. How do you see that tension being resolved? You know, on the one hand, you've got, you know, fishermen learning how to adapt via YouTube. And then you've got, you know, the billionaire class financing trips to Mars and, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think these are these are great questions. About the what you said in, in sort of the beginning there, one of the things that ecologists say about a back loop is that this is a time, it, it's important, it's most important in a back loop to recognize and to, to face up to the fact that we're living in a situation of the unknown. And the unknown means not that we should be afraid or live in fear, but that we should create our own rubrics and our own responses to the situations we find ourselves in rather than needlessly hauling along old frameworks from the past that no longer serve us. This means also that there are no blueprints or outside authorities that can dictate what living looks like anymore. I think it's up to, to everyone to answer that question themselves. What I think is actually really interesting is that if you look around, you see, you could say you see a civilization in experimentation mode and this applies not only to some fishermen down on the Mississippi River, it equally applies to a lot of these um, companies that are experimenting in, in incredibly large-scale ways, you know, geoengineering parts of the Earth or the idea of putting infrastructure on the moon or living on Mars, like uh, Elon Musk would like to do, you know. 
And in fact, a lot of people, I think, are perceiving this. A lot of the experimentation, the really daring, hubristic, creative experimentation happening in societies right now is coming from the private sector. It's coming from these really audacious guys, often like, like Musk and others, who have the money and the time and the, the resources to, to try out these ideas. You know? you know, on the one hand, you could say, and, and this applies to resilience too. You know, resilience, in the resilience world, there are a lot of really creative things going on. People are trying to use, you know, oysters for breakwaters. They're trying to elevate whole cities, you know, to make new, to make Miami into a new Florida Keys, you know. These are really daring efforts too, and they're interesting in and of themselves. You know, and you might say a lot of these, you know, corporate experiments are, you know, malevolent and, and nefarious, and, and maybe that's the case, right? But you know, I might from say an, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. But from a non, like, <laughs> if we step back from a non-judgmental perspective and just look at what's happening, it's fascinating to see the way in which experimentation has become like just kind of a dominant mode of operation for so many people with so many very different interests. So that interests me in and of itself. And I think for a lot of ordinary people, for example, in the fitness world, which I'm in a lot, they see a lot of these projects, you know, these big, you know, tech people and the things that they're doing in the private sector, and they find it really inspiring. And they also have an appreciation of the way in which there's a, a value placed on the freedom to creatively and freely experiment in that world, whether or not they want to be a part of that world or forward its interests. I think there's an ethos there that is really compelling for a lot of people. One of the things that I'm thinking about, and you, you say that you know the back loop is not a problem to be solved, and the way you speak of it is so hopeful in the sense that it's this wide field for experimentation, and there are all these kind of great things that come about. Is there an inevitability to this? I mean, how do you position you know the human species? How do you how do you say this is how we're going to live? This is how we're going to live in cities? If it really is just a, a sort of loop that what am I? I'll tell you what's really in my head. Like the ecological loop makes empirical sense to me. And I think would to anybody, you know, the idea that like, you know, the force grows, it matures, it reaches some sort of steady state and then lightning strikes and there's a fire and then there's, you know, sort of whole sort of disruption that, you know, creates new synergies and new species and everything like that. Right. So again, trying to, to transfer that analog into, you know, our current global environment, you could say that, we are in this period of experimentation and there's nothing to worry about. And that worries me because like, you know, you kind of do need to get people to worry about some of these crises, don't you? Oh yeah. So I think I, I see what you're saying. It all makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I would, I'm going to respond in a couple different ways, maybe. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. First I would say, I believe, you know, very fundamentally that there's a incredible amount of potential open to us as people right now in the world maybe more than ever. It's a beautiful time to be alive. And I wouldn't say that I am hopeful, you know, as you put it, hopeful, because hope to me always implies that you are hoping something will happen someday or somewhere, or that someone or something will make things better. And for me, I believe in the world right now. I believe in, in people and the people I know and the, the worlds that I'm in right now. I have great faith in that. So in the present and in, 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 in this situation where we are, I think that's where the potential lies. We face a barrage of images and data and, and discourses of catastrophe every day, you know, whether it's coming from the soap operas on Twitter or it's coming from the, the latest story about the latest wildfire or if it's coming from critical theory in academia. Um, more and more, a lot of the same images are being forward of catastrophe 
and crisis. And this creates a certain reaction in us as people. You know, we live in anxiety. We live in fear. We live in desperation in some sense, um, locked into this crisis mentality. I'm a big fan of the Stoics, the, the old Greek Stoics and their kind of approach to life. And for them, they said, you know, it's really important to decide, to step back for a second and decide how we respond to the situations that we're around. You know, are we in some sense sort of thrown about by them and hostages to them, or do we take up our own reaction to them? So, so for me, I think it's really important to, on the one hand, face up to the reality that we're in, which is deeply, deeply catastrophic in, in the real sense of catastrophe. You know, you have whole cities that will be gone. New Orleans will be gone landscapes will be gone, animals are dying every day, people are dying every day, you know, just think of Puerto Rico for an image of the, the depth of the situation. So I think it's important that we face up to what's happening on the one hand, but then on the other, I think it's so important that we refuse to get locked into these images that then tell us, well, because this is happening, the only thing left for humanity is crisis and crisis management and anxiety and survival. We have to refuse this image of what life is going to be in the Anthropocene. This is an image that we, we see everywhere, you know? And I just see it in my friends and my family and, and my students, you know? It causes a deep suffering and a deep paralysis in many cases, you know? So I think we have to really consciously and with, with deep love forward other images of life and, and forward our own ways of life, not just ideas of it, but just make them now. Right on, man. We need to bring that spirit back. You said something about this loop and how isn't it inevitable? Are we just locked in the loop or something like this? And to me, I want to get out of the loop. I, I think that for me, the goal is the aim and, and the stakes are to get out of the loop and to not go back into a single homogenous loop for human societies. You know, And so I think that's what's at stake in taking up this idea that we're a civilization experimenting right now, because that kind of experimentation is going to lead to so many new techniques and so many new forms of life for everyone who takes it up, you know? And so that, that means that we're not going back into the loop, which is, by the way, I think what a lot of um, resilience perspectives on this uh, adaptive cycle loop would like to see happen. Resilience is typically about how do you manage the back loop to go back into a new front loop yeah, and kind of keep things, this, everything the same through change in some sense. You know, but a lot of people need and want to get out of that loop. And I think that that is where we're heading if we allow this experimentation to occur. I think you're right. Like, we are in this loop. And uh, I think some of the inevitability issues that I was alluding to earlier are, are, are sort of about whether we stay on course and whether we stay on that loop or whether we break out of it. So thank you for that that perspective. Yeah. Um, you, you have gathered all this into a book that's going to be coming out, right? Yeah, I'm finishing up a book on the back loop right now. Um, and it's under contract for Open Humanities Press, which is, if you don't know it, a great critical climate change series run by Claire Kolberg. And yeah, and so it kind of walks through some of these different things we've been talking about, just sort of puts this back loop idea on the table uh, to see where we can go with it. And then it kind of walks through different ways that different people and different perspectives are responding to the back loop. So you first have sort of resilience and the resilience industry as one response, to put it really um, simplistically managing the back loop. And then we go into sort of the sort of apocalyptic imaginaries that proliferate 
in critical theory and in uh, popular culture. I'm really interested in the way in which these actually forward, you know, sort of an image of, of life as survival, which is actually really de- debilitating for us, even though they're, they're trying to get out of the loop. I think they're, they're bringing us back to it. The majority of the book then kind of sprawls into looking at these different forms of back loop experimentation and in different domains. So the amphibious fisherman is one of them, but uh, it, it looks at a, a lot of things happening in the fitness world, like CrossFit and um, some, some uh, more cultural and sort of um, existential forms of experimentation, um, which I look at in um, the Jamaican reggae singer Chronix's um, work. And so it just tries to put forward a perspective um, that I draw out of these experiments for rather than managing the back loop, rather than just surviving it and enduring it, taking it up and inhabiting it in our own ways, freely and creatively. Does it have a title yet? Provisionally, it's uh, (laughs) (laughs) Life in the Back Loop, Experimentation in Unsafe Operating Space. Awesome. So I might add there's going to be a multimedia component of it too. It's going to be a YouTube channel and website where I, I put up some videos that I've made of all the different Backloop experiments that I'm looking at called Backloop TV. Backloop TV. Man, I can't wait. That in <laughs> itself sounds like a Backloop experiment. It is because I don't know how to do video editing whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning right now. <laughs> it's great to hear how you're thinking about these things too. To me, that's one of the most, it's what this is about. You know, I want to talk and, and, and learn from, from other people and share ideas because it's, you know, we're all going through this, you know. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. And if you're ever down in the Florida area, hit me up. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guest of the week, Dr. Stephanie Wakefield, for her insights into backloop resilience and for explaining it to me patiently while I was getting my head around it. It's a fascinating theory and a hopeful one. As Dr. Wakefield so eloquently puts, the backloop is not a problem to be solved. It's a ground for experimentation, and it really is a beautiful time to be alive. Next week, we're moving back across the pond, where we'll be speaking with Maggie Stevenson of UN Habitat and thinking and talking about responding to disasters tactically, but with aspirations towards something greater. To learn more about Dr. Wakefield and her work, please visit our website at currystonefoundation.org. There, you'll find links to her work and her writing, and we'll keep it updated so that you can find a link to order Stephanie's book as soon as it hits shelves. As always, if you have any feedback on the show, ideas for guests, or just want to chat, you can write to me at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation and is produced by Baruch Seichner. If you're enjoying the music at the break, you can check it out. It's called Anthropocene by Ad Depths from their self-titled EP. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Curry Stone FDN for all the latest news on social impact design.